I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to a very special edition of TalkHouse, featuring the second episode of the Macintosh for the Love of Music podcast. In this series, we explore the history of legendary American audio gear maker Macintosh Laboratory through conversations with renowned musicians and audio professionals. Macintosh has been hand-building the very best audio equipment in Binghamton, New York for over 70 years. Not only did they help create the hi-fi industry, they have forever changed how we listen to music. Even if you've never heard the name Macintosh, you've definitely seen their gear with its iconic blue watt meters and green glowing logo. It's been featured in numerous blockbuster movies, including The Departed, Ocean's 8, John Wick 3, and Knives Out, to name a few, along with hit TV shows like Elementary, Marin, and Law and & Order. Anyone who watched season two of Mr. Robot would have seen the incredible world of Macintosh Townhouse in Manhattan, which in the show serves as the headquarters for Rami Malek and Carly Chaikin's characters. LCD Sound System's James Murphy has even created a custom DJ system called Dispacio using over 35 Macintosh amplifiers. And their products can be found in the homes of many famous and influential musicians, both past and present. In the inaugural episode of this series, I caught up with former Grateful Dead electronics outfitter and renowned music gear creator, Janet Furman. For today's show, I got the chance to go deep with Third Man Records co-owner, official White Stripes archivist, and drummer of revered garage rockers The Dirt Bombs, Ben Blackwell. Ben has lived in the music industry from an early age. He began working for his uncle Jack White's band, The White Stripes, as a teen. And in 2009, White, Blackwell, and another Detroit pal, Ben Swank, opened Third Man Records in Nashville. The label, whose motto is, your turntable's not dead, has become one of the world's finest purveyors of both new albums and deluxe reissues on vinyl. Their HQ in Nashville is truly incredible and includes a stacked record and audio gear store, a live venue outfitted to record shows direct to acetate, a dark room, an editing bay, and a massive warehouse filled with books, band merch, and all manner of music ephemera. Keep it locked to hear about the founding of Third Man, how the label's incredible reissues are dreamt up and brought to life, Neil Young pulling Ben away from his work, and so much more. Check it out. Ben Blackwell, welcome to For the Love of Music. Thanks for uh, putting a gun to my head and making me be here. I didn't have a choice. (laughs) Well, listen, man, to kick things off, could you tell us about the various hats that you wear at Third Man? Because you seem to be working in like 15 areas at once. Yeah. uh, When we started out at Third Man, there was this directive that no official job titles, that job titles are inherently limiting and that it's more often used for someone to say, I'm not going to do that because I am, what's what's the Rolling Stones line, under assistant West Coast promotions man. I don't do those (laughs) things. But, But with Jack's thought process, it was everyone should do everything. You know, and when we started, there was only two people here. So it was kind of more just out of necessity than anything else. But as it stands today, I kind of oversee all of our vinyl operations. So that's manufacturing in our plant up in Detroit, what we're making, where we're making it, how we're making it, mastering. My world is, is vinyl records uh, by and by. And Ben, I understand you also do a lot of the sourcing of the tapes. Yeah, I do I do a lot of uh, reissues or archival releases, maybe old recordings that had never been put out originally. I, I tend to think I work better with dead artists than living ones. <laughs> no, I'm that's <laughs> being pretty 
flipping about it. But yeah, I, I that's just I guess where my brain lays. I, I think more about that stuff than new recordings and new artists. I feel out of touch in that regard. And I'm probably more in touch than most people, but the people that I'm surrounded by, I'm probably out of touch. It's all relative, right? Yeah. You surround yourself with experts, that kind of thing. So I am not the expert on new music. Well, a couple of things that I adore about Third Man's aesthetic is the way that the deepest attention is paid to detail and the small handcrafted batch mentality that seems to inform all of your projects. Now, you've been with Third Man from the very beginning. What's the genesis of those philosophies in the company? Man, I don't know if it was necessarily planned out, if it was the idea that here's exactly how we're going to do it and this is the vibe we're going to put out. We just kind of went on instinct. So for me, instinctively, I had been working in vinyl record business for maybe about 10 years prior give or take. I started at this small Detroit indie label called Italy Records. And Italy put out the first two White Stripe singles. And once confronted with that operation, working for the White Stripes, seeing how, how Dave Buick ran that label Italy, I was completely enamored. He just ran it out of his front room of his house in Detroit. And it was all, you fold the singles in your front room while you're watching TV and you pack up the mail orders and you send it out and Every once in a while, you'll call a distributor and see if they're dumb enough to buy multiple copies. I love it. Full DIY. You know, kind of rinse, repeat, all that shit. And then after a couple of years of doing that with Dave, I'd started my own label when I was 20 years old out of my high school childhood bedroom doing the same thing, mainly doing seven-inch singles, mail order, distributors when they were gullible. And so that was kind <laughs> of what informed Third Man. You know, we do a lot of seven-inch singles when, when most labels don't. We placed a, a high priority on direct-to-customer mail order when a lot of labels don't. And, you know, that direct-to-customer mail order has been really, really good for us in the past five months because people on a large extent have stopped shopping as much at physical record stores, but they still want music. And so we, we send it right to them. Our mail order remained really, really strong through all the, the pandemic. Our, the guys down there said it was like three months of Christmas shopping. True story, before this interview today, Ben, I placed an order at that exact store for an issue of your magazine, Maggot Brain, and the full Franz Gall reissue collection. My, my children's college fund thanks you. Um. <laughs> well, tell me, man, in a time where there's so many newer technologies, what is it about doing things those old time-tested ways that really appeals to you guys? I think time-tested, you landed right on it that it can be scary being an early adopter of anything, of a piece of equipment or of a technology or of a idea. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we appreciate and what we value here at Third Man in terms of art and creativity, you know, we're not talking about cave paintings at Lascaux. You know, how would you make a cave painting in that manner now? No, you can still get a nice Fender Twin Reverb amp. You don't need to be wasting your effort on plugins and digital emulators and things of that nature. It, it's not necessarily the easiest way. And that, that kind of harkens back to this line that Jack has said forever, uh, you know, talking about the white stripes. He said, I didn't want to take the easy way out. Right. I didn't want to play the brand new out of the box guitar that j just stayed in tune. I wanted struggle. I wanted to fight. I wanted to have to work against something. And so a little bit of that bakes into 
the idea of, you know, we're selling vinyl records. That's not the easiest thing, you know, especially when you think back when we started in 2009. Everyone would have just said, well, why aren't, you know, you need to make everything available on iTunes and, and CDs. That's how you're going to make money in the record business in this day. It's like, we'll do that as like our third and fourth ideas down the line, but no, we love vinyl records. All of our favorite music has always been on vinyl records. That's what I know. That's what I was doing in the late 90s. And it wasn't because it was cool or it wasn't because everyone thought it was cool. It was because I thought it was cool. Right. There was no larger public vinyl is back narrative going on. It would be some years before that kicked in. Yeah, probably about 10 years. So it was true yeah. underground and it was affordable. You could do it cheaply. It was still cheaper to make a vinyl record than a CD. And so... You know, I'm not patting myself on the back here, but it's because of people like myself working for Italy Records, Italy Records putting out vinyl and underground labels, independent labels like Sub Pop, Matador, In The Red Records, Estrus, et cetera, et cetera, labels like that, that, that kept everything going, that drove the narrative that, oh, vinyl is coming back. Look at all these cool underground labels that are doing it and they're doing cool, interesting shit. And that further upstreams into larger major labels who never stopped making vinyl, but they definitely curtailed it for a long time. And all of a sudden, Urban Outfitters has a vinyl section and has become the biggest vinyl retailer in the States for a while. Yeah, that's and, and so in, in some regard, when things like that happen or you see people, they're giving away record players as prizes on The Price is Right, things like that. You see vinyl in Target. For a while, we're just like, ah, you know, that is what it is. But after years and years of that, I'm like, Man, that's probably because of us. That's like <laughs> that's the effort that we put into all of this. We helped elevate this to a to a larger consciousness. And people will will call bullshit on me and screw them. They didn't do it. <laughs> You've been in the trenches, man. Yeah. You have been in the trenches. Yes. Well, Ben, we've heard that Jack White requested there be Macintosh equipment at Third Man HQ. What Macintosh equipment do you all have over there? Ooh, so we've got a couple different setups and we've got a couple different locations. So for example, our storefront in Detroit, all of the in-house you know, music you hear pumping through the speakers, that's all through a, a Macintosh system. Nice. And then in our, our general kind of hangout lounge here at Third Man is another Macintosh system. Um, but it's a Macintosh amp and uh, a couple other components. I think there's a CD player in there. Um, but then like the, the badass system is in Jack's office, which is Macintosh, monoblock, huge ass receiver, just totally decked out. And nice. uh, it's, it's dangerous. Like I, I will say <laughs> it's dangerous because we'll, we'll listen to that stuff really, really loud. And it, it definitely, it spoils you being able to hear things that well. So I have to pick and choose when I will actually make the effort to listen to something under those circumstances because I don't want to be totally spoiled. So you're not checking every test pressing on Macintosh equipment? No, it probably only makes sense to listen to a test pressing on the Macintosh system once I've listened to it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Like once something's approved or, or kind of dealt with because the Macintosh, it makes records sound too good. And that's not, that's not what I <laughs> totally. want when I'm listening to a test pressing. I kind of need to take into context the wide range of what people will be listening to these records on when they 
buy them and take them home. So you have to consider like 1960s Fisher Price, Big Bird, you know, portable record player all the way up to <laughs> these crazy Macintosh systems. And so I've never had a record not sound good on that system. The Macintosh, top of the line, badass, monoblock, the glowing blue lights. I'm drooling. Yeah, me too. Good thing this microphone has that pop thing over it. <laughs> but so I, I, I kind of have to find like this, this middle ground. I use a Audio-Technica ATLP120, which is basically a Techniques 1200 clone, but super affordable. And I like the idea that it has all three speeds. So you can do 33, 45, or 78. And it also has uh, push button stop and uh, reverse. So that to me is really, really valuable when I'm listening to a test pressing because if I hear a pop or I hear something like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, and I want to go back to it, I just press a button and it's, it's push button will just start rewinding. Nice. And I can, I can kind of ride it back and forth. Like, do I still hear that pop? What's going on? You don't need the DJ spin out. No, I don't. And that can be difficult too. If, you're, if you hear something and trying to find the exact spot, Without the reverse, you'd be pressing start, stop button, and then you'd have to cue back right. counterclockwise to try to find it. And, you know, why use your hands if there's a button that will do it, you know? <laughs> but I, th- I think the LP120 is maybe not necessarily an industry standard, but I don't think anyone argues with it and thinks that it's a bad idea. So I got to kind of toe the line. I can't be super hi-fi and I can't be super lo-fi. I have to be kind of in the middle. Yeah, no, it's good to be testing across grades, yeah. Yeah, so it helps that there's at least two other setups here in the office that I can, well, let me go check it out in the lounge, which has got the badass Macintosh. I've been in the lounge there. It does sound awesome. Yes. And then I can also like, well, let me really listen to it in Jack's office. And that's, that's a rarefied uh, occasion. And I would say that's celebratory. <laughs> nice, man. Champagne and Macintosh. Yeah. Well, th- this sort of leads me into something that I wanted to ask you, man, which is, how you feel that music listening habits of today have influenced listeners, musicians, and equipment manufacturers, right? So I'm thinking of things like streaming music, wireless listening, things like that. What's your take? Wow. That is a, I don't know if I've ever considered that before. I guess I would say that to use techniques as an example, you know, they stopped making the, the 1200, their signature turntable, probably the most recognizable turntable of all time. I think they stopped making it in 2009, 2012, maybe somewhere around there. Okay. Kind of right when things started to take off, you know, vinyl uh, resurgence-wise. And whatever, not six, seven years later, they're like, we're bringing it back. I'm surprised it took them that long. Yeah, and, and there's, there's no shortage of them out there either. It's, it was kind of the default go-to DJ turntable. I've got one for when I spin. Yeah, exactly, for years and years that you could always find secondhand ones and there was definitely availability of replacement parts. You could get them serviced really easily, which is something that is beneficial to have a component like that. Sure. So I, th- I think of that, but then also the fact that you can find a record player at Target or Urban Outfitters, you know, for the longest time when I was younger, in my, you know, Detroit borderline of the suburbs upbringing, to find a new record player was, was almost impossible. Yeah, you almost had to mail order it at that point. Yeah, but also like I, when I'm 16, I don't know, mail order a, a, a turntable. So, so for me, it was always you just go to the Salvation Army and it was the great time to be doing that because the Salvation Army would be littered with 
these turntables that people nice. were, were getting rid of in the mid 90s. You know, that's probably about the time that a lot of people were tapping out there. Yeah, going to CDs. Yeah, so I don't think I had a new record player. God damn. Till this summer. <laughs> I think I had a new one. <laughs> I was probably already at Third Man's. I was probably in my 30s. I had bought new portables. Like Vestax had a cool line of portables. I don't think they make anymore that were great for digging. Nice. And all kind of packed up like a little suitcase. And <laughs> I would take it with me on tour. I would take it with the idea of being able to listen to records at record stores and check them out. But then I would also bring records with me and that served as my personal Walkman. So nice. I'd be sitting, there's somewhere out there, there's a picture of me in an airplane with the tray table down with my portable turntable sitting <laughs> on the tray table spinning like a, yeah, 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 picture disc LP or something. Yeah. Like 2004 or whatever. Uh, I mean, I love I'm, it, man. I'm proud of it. And it's also, it's, it's a little bit, oh, I was too dedicated. That's all I can this say. This is why you co-founded Third Men, you know? Exactly. That, that's, that's how you have to be. This is the vinyl fetishization that, that was needed to found the empire, man. <laughs> ben, tell me, how do you all at the label make sure that each release is up to your standards? I know that you guys are digging through a lot of historic releases that, that maybe haven't been taken care of maybe aren't as clean as we'd be used to nowadays. Yeah. So how do you guys make sure that you're able to keep that consistency? You know, you, you have to view every release individually in regards to what is available to you. So for things that we're involved in creating, i.e. Jack White related projects done at his studio, the, the genesis starts here at Third Man, that's kind of the easiest one because we know from the first note recorded, we, we have control over all of that. And so that generally means, you know, recorded to two-inch tape, mixed to one-inch tape, cut from that one-inch tape direct to disc. Oftentimes, not always, you know, digitally mastered from that one-inch tape. That's easy. We've set that up. We've instituted that. But when you start reissuing stuff and you're dealing with licensing titles from other labels, you're then at the whims of what that label thought was important 30 years ago or what they thought was garbage 30 years ago, what they kept, what they forgot. And it's, it's a crapshoot. My favorite one was we did reissues of the Melvin's three Atlantic LPs, their major label LPs. So it's... Oh man, classics. Yeah, so Houdini, Stoner Witch, and Stag. Total classics. And we worked with the Melvins to do it. The Melvins had, in short, been told that they would never be able to get those records reissued for by whatever, some lackey at Warner Brothers or something like that. And I said, well, let me, I, I know some people over there. Let me make a phone call. Because we had just recorded a live record by the Melvins here at Third Man in Nashville. And, you know, talked to the right people at Warner Brothers. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll let Third Man do it. That's, that sounds cool. And the Melvins were kind of like, really? Like you just made one call <laughs> and it happened? I guess, you know, nice. they like us over there. And so in the process of getting everything working together, you got to make deals with their reissues department. And we hadn't really done too much of that at that point. Um, but pretty far in the process, I said, you know, if you guys have the original analog reels, I want to I cut from those. Like I don't want to just nice. be given a digital master. And whomever I was dealing with at the time was like, well, that's, you know, I can't, I can't guarantee that, that, you know, my bosses are going to approve that. Someone's got to sign off on it. And, uh, you know, I can't guarantee that we even have, you know, all that stuff. And it's going to delay this, this process if it does 
circle around like that. But you're thinking, let's wait a little bit. If yeah, we can whatever, get it from the original tapes, that's, that's the highest quality. Yeah, these records haven't been out in 20 years already. What's another six months? You know, no, right, one, no right. one knows we're doing this. No one's waiting on it in terms of the public. As you announce that shit after you've already pressed it. Right. And like super quick. Like, oh yeah, you signed off. They're, they approve it. And they sent down nice. the, original, the original reels of all those records. And it was pretty awesome because our cutting engineer... At that time, was a, we were primarily using a guy named George Ingram at Nashville Record Productions here in town. Been cutting records since the late 60s. Just an amazing wealth of information. He's cut tens of thousands of records over his life. You don't really get too much out of him in regards to, you know, the material. You know, he gets the job done. But to hear him unsolicited say, they recorded these albums really, really well. Oh, man. To hear that from him, it's like, oh man, that makes me feel really good that we got the tapes yes. because, because he, can hear, he can hear it when he's putting it on the tape machine and he's cutting. That's a, that's a really big bonus. See, this is what I was talking about earlier, Ben, that you guys are taking the extra steps for the most care for the final product. Yeah. We do that whenever we can. Now, oftentimes um, some labels won't give you the, those tapes. A lot of labels just don't even have them. But we've, we've got our own mastering and cutting house in Detroit now. So we've got third man mastering up there, which is connected to our storefront. And it's connected to our pressing plant. And most labels that you deal with will just want to give you digital files um, when you're licensing a title from them for reissue. And so what our guys have, have started to do is take those digital files and transfer them to tape and then cut from that tape so that you're still throwing analog in there somewhere. Right to try and get the beneficial markers and characteristics of the format because people love asking you, did you cut this from tape? Did you have the original masters? What did you, you (laughs) what was your source material? It's like, imagine like the worst of Civil War reenactors just (laughs) under the guise of audio files. After a certain point, like, you just hate music, don't you? You just want to find someone tripping up. You want to call someone out. Like it, it seems like it's oftentimes uh, focused on the negative where you can, yeah. you can make a, a great record sourced from digital material. It wouldn't be my first choice, but I also wouldn't inherently shit on one done from that starting point. Look, we'd rather have the record than not have it. Absolutely. Right? That's what it comes down to. This is great music that needs to be heard. Yes. To that end, Ben... A question that that I've wondered and that I've heard a number of fans of the label ask is, how are all of these projects dreamed up, man? I mean, some of these are some very obscure records that are then packaged in glorious ways. Could you illuminate that process for us? Yeah, I think the the benefit is that the variety of folks that are working on, on those projects are first and foremost music fans. Yeah. And so... Yeah. You have people who, like myself, for example, but I would say this about anyone else at Third Man, who listen to music and, and love music in their free time, in their spare time. They buy records and they collect records as, as something they do for the enjoyment of it. It's not solely their job, their punch the clock, their nine to five. And the fact that those things can overlap that's how you can find these interesting moments and, and these things that are possibly overlooked by someone who's just, 
yeah, man, I just put out records. Uh, you know, some, some people, it's just a job, you know, and that's, that's okay. There needs to be labels like that. Um, but right. that's just not us. I, I guess a good example I would use is there was a record, this obscure Michigan, I would say for, for simplification purposes, garage single okay. um, by a guy named Jack Wood and was self-released in like 1966, I believe. It's called Born to Wander. And I had been looking for a copy, an original copy of this record for six, seven years. And it would show up on eBay. And I just always was like the second highest bidder. And, you know, okay. I, thought, I thought maybe it was a $100 record and it would go for like 150 Or I'd mm -hmm. think, okay, I'll spend 200 and it goes for 275 Like four or five times that happened. And I just kept on getting outbid and I was pissed off. <laughs> so one day I just decided to Google, just type the name in, Jack Wood, Born to Wander. I'm doing this totally on my own personal interest. And I find that he, Jack Wood has set up a website and he's actually repressed this record. Oh, wow. And you can buy it from his website. For $10, he'll autograph the, the label for you. So I buy a copy and I say, hey, send an email from my, my work email address and just say, hey, man, super stoked to get this wondering if you've ever thought about reissuing it with someone else. Because I think the reissue that he had undertaken was, was fairly recent at that point and just available to whoever was Google searching for his name in this record. Like you wouldn't find it in a record store or distributor right. or anything like that. Right. And like, I'm a deep music nerd. I don't know this guy's name. Yeah. No, he did yeah. one single and that was it. Yeah. And uh, he knew the third man name. So that kind of opens the doors. And he, he had said... Um, I was thinking about it and maybe someone else had reached out to him right around the same time. But he said, well, I, I think Third Man is the place for it. And so we work with him. We, we put together sleeve art. We remat. We get, uh, I think we just master from an original clean copy of the record. And I think I had to, I sourced the clean copy. Like, so I had to talk to all my record wow. collector <laughs> friends. So, so there, there wasn't tape. At the time, there wasn't the tape. Subsequently, Jack seems to have found the original master tape, but we had such a clean copy by the time he turned it up, I said, I think we're fine on, on what we've put out there already. But yeah, so my underground network of super deep Michigan record collectors, I, I call up my guy, Carl. Like, hey, Carl, do you have a copy of Jack Wood, a clean one? He's like, yeah, it's like, you know, mint minus. I'm like, okay, just <laughs> tell me the price I need. Yes. We're reissuing it. And so buy that from him, use that as our source material. And it kind of gets a life of its own outside of any of our involvement, it got licensed for a really massive Bacardi rum ad campaign, like worldwide. Wow. He, he's made insane amount of money on that. But it wasn't through your licensing department? No, no, it was totally separate. Still, you guys gave it some juice. There's no well, doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, just being connected with Third Man, we got it out there. And then yeah, we, we, we subsequently got further licenses for it in other realms. That's amazing. Yeah, and this guy is like, he's retired. He's like probably in his late 60s or early 70s now. And he's just tickled that, that this thing he did on a lark yeah. back in the 60s is, is now like, you know, is paying his mortgage years and years later. Like we, we have to consistently send him royalty checks. And that all comes from my own personal quest of trying to find this record because I just liked the songs. And so that crosses over into my, my job here and the lines blur. And I, I have this conversation with my wife oftentimes, which is, you know, I got to go to work. And she teases me and was like, yeah, you have to go to work at your dream job, <laughs> which is true. This is my dream job. I could not imagine, unless someone would pay you just to sleep and do nothing, 
working at a record label. I, I would be happy working at any record label, like 100%. It's a dream so few people get. Yeah, yeah I, I would be happy putting out polka music that I don't like. Just the, the process is what really, really intrigues me and engages me. So to be able to put out records like The Stooges and like this Jack Wood record or The White Stripes, like my favorite band, to be able to do that, I just, I keep on waiting to wake up from the dream and, and 11 years on, I'm, I'm still in this dream. <laughs> It really is a dream setup that you all have built there. I've been uh, lucky enough to get a tour of the facility when I was down in Nashville. And it really does feel, and I've heard this comparison from other people, but it really does feel like being in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It's a sonic version of that. (laughs) And, you know, one of the rooms that was so cool is the Blue Room venue there which has direct to acetate recording capability and where you guys have done some insane concerts. I mean, tell me how that part of the Third Man Empire came together. So we didn't start with that. That wasn't always here. Um, We started with just a very simple, very basic um, live room, the Blue Room uh, stage, and we had it hooked up for um, recording to tape, which at the time we couldn't think of any venue that was equipped with a, you know, a a two inch tape machine to do live recordings from. So we were pretty stoked on that. And after a couple years of of working in that realm, the opportunity came up to expand. We bought the building next door to us. And in buying that building, we were afforded the opportunity to to build onto the alley separating the two buildings. And so it came up and I said, well, we could do a more dedicated recording suite, a studio aspect. Have it right in house. Yeah. And so... We talked again, George Ingram at Nashville Record Productions. It was kind of this conversation between he and Jack where Jack said, well, if you bring a lathe over, I'll build a room for it. And George said, well, if you build the room, I'll bring the lathe over. And uh, it was kind of this standoff. (laughs) And Jack eventually just just built the room and George said, "Ah, I didn't think you were going to build the room, but... I'll hold up my end of the bargain. So they brought the lathe nice. over. The lathe is a 1955 Scully lathe that uh, came out of King Records in Cincinnati. Um, so, you know, oh, King man. is like James Brown, Little Willie John, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, all the federal titles. Um, just a, a really, really important label in American musical history uh, across many, many different artists and, and genres even. So once we got that hooked up, we then started recording direct to disc. And so recording direct to disc was out of vogue by approximately, I say like... 50 years? Uh, I mean, no, longer than that. Like I would say like maybe the, the mid to late 50s, the transfer over to tape had already started. When Elvis went to record his first recordings for his mom, so to speak, it's not actually how it happened, but his first recordings were on direct-to-disc. And by the time he's recording his final singles for Son, like two years later, he's recording to tape. Parenthetically, you guys have that very first Elvis straight to disc because yeah. I've seen it. I have pressed my nose against the glass and drooled a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Right there in the third man office. We do have it. Yeah. But yeah, so we're talking about a process that has been not widely used or, or not in vogue for at that point, what is it, 60 years or so? And it requires an artist to approach their art differently. Mm-hmm. So most people just go on, they play their show and that's it recording live to disc, you you have to give these these bands and these artists, you have to tell them, all right, here's how we do it. You get on stage, you need to record a test song. We need to make sure all of our levels are okay. 
And if everything is good for the engineer at the front of the house and it's good for the cutting engineers in the back of the house and your monitors at the side of the stage, then we do the real recording. So, you know, it's like movie magic. You got the applause sign and, and you're <laughs> stitching everything together so that it's going to work yeah. for, the, for the final end product. You got a team behind the scenes. Yeah, so the band has to record a side at a time. So that's 20 minutes per side. And so in that 20 minutes, there's no editing, there's no overdubs, there's no redos, there's no starting and stopping. Whatever happens on that 20 minutes is what ends up on your finished record. So that includes if you burp into the microphone, if you have to tune your guitar, if you knock over your bass drum. Right. All of that is there. Think of it as, you know, trapeze without a net. There's nothing to save you after the fact. And somehow, Ben, despite the fact that there is no net, artists go wild for this approach, man. You guys have had so many cool people come through. I'm thinking everyone from M. Du Mokhtar to Father John Misty to Billie Eilish. People who are not recording this way normally are so amped to have the opportunity. Yeah, we did... Uh... Melvin's, Mud Honey, Pearl Jam. I don't think you two made it past the record booth in the store, did they? To the all the way to the Blue Room. Well, what we did was, I'm so glad you asked. We <laughs> did record you two direct to disc, but they weren't okay. set up in the Blue Room. They were set up in our storefront. We just had to run the cables a little further. They recorded direct to disc. It was supposed to be a seven inch, and then uh, the idea just kind of got scuttled. But we did record it, and we did you know test pressings. But yeah, they, it, it ended up not coming out. So, so when you talk about U2, you talk about Pearl Jam, you talk about Melvin's Mount Honey, we're, we're talking about bands that have been together for, I think each of them, 30 years or more. Yeah, longer than Billie Eilish has been alive. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think the, <laughs> the appeal to them is all of those bands have done multiple live records and they've done just about everything, but they hadn't done that. That's the appeal. Well, shit, we've been in a band for three decades. We've never recorded direct-to-disc. Let's go do it. And then you also have people like, for example, Billie Eilish, who sees all those other artists that we've recorded in that manner. And, you know, she's building a legacy at this point. She's beyond, like, trying to establish herself. She's established. She wants to do what the greats are, have done or are doing. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's it. So... We were even surprised that the Billie Eilish thing happened. That kind of seemed like unbelievable. It was amazing. And it came out so well. Yeah, and quickly too. That, that's the other thing too, is that from recording to release, I think it was just a little over four weeks. So we, we rushed that sucker out and uh, it was only available in our storefronts. So you could only buy it physically in Nashville and Detroit, which is pretty cool to have the biggest artist arguably in the world at that point put out a record available in two stores. I love it. So they got it. She got it and her team got it, which in those situations, the, the biggest barrier is people not getting it. But when they get it, it's kind of an open door. I was very lucky to have the opportunity to do a direct-to-disc at Third Man Records. And uh, I sang my daughter's favorite lullaby and bought her the Third Man record player and now she has her dad singing live from third man you're making me cry i, I feel in touch with the legends <laughs> well yeah absolutely you know did you, you you did it in the recording booth i did it in the recording yeah, booth which yeah. uh, for those listening is a maybe hundred year old booth ben slow slow down lumiere it's uh <laughs> it's 1947 uh, okay so okay. it's a 1947 excuse voice me a 73 year old booth Still older than I don't Billie know too Eilish. many 73-year-old people that would take kindly to being mistaken for being 100. 
but the sentiment is there. Uh, no, so it's a 1947 voiceograph recording booth. <laughs> These used to be at like the, the observation deck of the Empire State Building or the Atlantic City Boardwalk. They sent them to military bases during World War II. Basically, you go in, you put your money in, and you get 90 seconds to record a message. And that message is etched into a one-of-a-kind uh, polycarbonate disc that you can then take to your home record player and play back. You know, back in the day, it was used like, hey, I'm at the Atlantic City Boardwalk. You know, hope you don't die of dysentery, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, but nowadays, oh, the cool man. thing about the booth that we have, so when we set up that booth, it was the first one available to the public in probably at least 25 years, maybe even 30 at that point. Amazing. We had known that these booths had existed and Jack had had this thought of like, man, I would love to get one. And he, he said, he's, I always just expected I was going to be on tour somewhere like in Romania and I'd find one of these in a cafe. Right. And it just never happened. But we finally ended up chancing upon uh, the opportunity to get some. We found three different booths and bought them all. And uh, oh, wow. in the process of kind of, you know, one was better suited than the rest and put tons of effort in getting it up and running. Tons of money, tons of time, hours, sweat, and all that stuff. After a certain point, Jack had just said, well, we're never going to make our money back on this. Like this, he's like, but I don't care. <laughs> He said, this is just something beautiful. It's romantic. It needs to exist. And I'm fine having spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars making that happen. I'm okay. And you're with also that. only charging, I think, 20 bucks a pop, right? I mean, it's, it's cheap to use. I, I like telling this story because it speaks to the deeper purpose and mindset of third man. Let's just make it, let's not worry what we're going to spend. It just needs to exist. That was Jack's directive. Oh, love it. So the first day that we had the booth open... Basically unannounced, Neil Young shows up and says, hey, can I record a song in there? What? <laughs> what? And so we're looking at each other like, wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty good sign. Neil Young showed up and he recorded a song, you know, high-fiving and like, you know, it took a lot to just even get to that point. And Neil shows yeah. up, awesome. And then maybe three months later, Neil got a hold of Jack and said, hey, I want to do my whole new album recorded in your record booth. And that's an wow. even further thought of like, wow, we're doing something right. So we took it out of the store. We put it in the blue room and Neil was in there with Jack recording for like three days. And this is a telephone booth size yeah, absolutely. setup. For those who haven't seen it, literally a telephone Arguably booth, Arguably right? maybe even smaller than a telephone booth. Like You, you can't hold the guitar sideways. You'd have to hold it upwards. Yeah, you have to almost. hold it. Like you, you got to wiggle yourself in there. Um, yeah. It helps to keep the door open partially. Neil's a spelt man. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Neil's idea was that it was all cover songs of, of songs that he learned when he was becoming a songwriter. Oh, so it was magical. Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, Burt Janch. And so he records it. One of my favorite third man memories is being at the desk I'm sitting at right now, which is maybe about 30 or 40 feet from the blue room. It's the end of a day and my door is open. And I'm working on some emails and I hear in the distance, I hear Neil Young singing Bob Dylan blowing in the wind. Wow. I'm like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm hearing Neil Young singing blowing in the wind. And what I'm hearing right now is not a recording. It's not playback. What I'm hearing is emanating yeah. from Neil Young's chest. Like this is his lungs pumping it out. You're giving me shivers. So I said these emails. I'm just going to sit and listen to Neil Young sing for the rest of the day. It's 4.30. I'm just going to listen to Neil Young. I don't think anyone was mad at me for that. When it comes time for the record to be released, 
promotionally, we have this awesome opportunity where actually Neil is scheduled to play on The Tonight Show. And we got our engineers to take the booth up to New York and set up the booth on the stage at The Tonight Show. And he, he performs in the booth. <laughs> and that's not, that's not even the coolest part. The coolest part is that the, the station brass or whoever had the ability to make the call, they ran the audio from the disc that they recorded not the studio audio, not all their super high-res mics. So what they ran, they wow. <laughs> Neil Young, it sounded like 1947, poppy, tinny, one microphone, no EQ recording. That's what they broadcast out to millions of people. So we're already thinking, that's amazing. Neil Young, as part of his record deal, you know, he gets a, a budget for his recording studios for every album that he does. Well, what was the recording studio for, for this record? It was this little phone booth. Yeah. So we were able to, you know, take some of that and put that towards the cost that we had sunk into it. It, was, it wasn't, you know, it didn't pay off everything. It was like, wow, that's a kind of nice little boon. And from there, what we hadn't anticipated was after it was on The Tonight Show and people, the story of, of this booth kind of went out there, we started getting people come in almost immediately. I want to record in the booth Neil Young recorded in. Um, almost every day to the point where we, <laughs> we've had over... 4,000 recordings done in that booth since in whatever, seven years. That's incredible. More than doubling our initial investment into the project and into making it work. And that's kind of this great thing that we keep in the back of our heads at Third Man, which is sometimes, not all the time, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you need to just throw caution to the wind and make something happen and not be worried about every last penny and saying, eh, we, we spent too much money already. Let's just, you know, let's, let's cut our losses. You can't do it all the time. You, you need to be judicious in when you apply it. But in that situation, our not being concerned with every last nickel spent on the booth, I think ultimately enabled us to make it more profitable than it ever could have been. And millions of people have heard it. That is just a wonderful metaphor for everything you guys do there. And Ben, as a fan of Third Man, thank you so much for throwing caution to the wind for these years, man. (laughs) I just can never wait to see what you guys do next. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. And really, man, for all your work as a historian, as a conservator, and for shining a light on so much great music that would otherwise be lost. Really appreciate you deeply, man. Man, it's been fun chopping it up with you. Let's do it again sometime. Yes. Till next time. Awesome. Peace. Thanks so much for listening to this very special episode of TalkHouse and Macintosh's For the Love of Music podcast series. Check out our debut episode featuring longtime Grateful Dead engineer and Furman Electronics founder, Janet Furman. And make sure to catch future episodes of the series to hear conversations with James Murphy, Too Many DJs, and more. Visit MacintoshLabs.com to check out the very best amplifiers, preamplifiers, receivers, speakers, and turntables being made by hand in Binghamton, New York. Our producers for this series are Ian Wheeler and Mark Yoshizumi. Ben Blackwell recorded himself at his Third Man Records office in Nashville. Our researcher is Reese Higgins. Till next time, I'm Elia Einhorn. Peace. Peace.